invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 8 today, and that's on page 1028 in the Red Bibles. We're going to focus in on chapter 1, verses 4 through 8 today, but I'm going to go ahead and read from beginning of verse 1 down through verse 8, as that entire part of the passage includes the salutation from John to the people that he's writing to. So listen as I read to you from the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray together. Our great God and King, you are the Almighty. And so we come and pray to you because who else could we pray to? We ask for you to open our eyes, to open our minds, that through the work of the Holy Spirit, you would take your word and impress it deeply into us, that we might truly live for you this week ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Who are you? Who are you? It's a fairly simple question, but it's anything but a simple answer. Uh, what do you think of when you're asked that question? What are the things that come to mind? How would you answer that question to somebody who asked you? What are the things that you would say that make up your identity, that, that describe who you are? Perhaps, uh, like many uh, in our day and age in, in this particular culture, we would go very quickly to our work, to our jobs, to our vocations to describe who we are. I, I'm a doctor. I'm a nurse. I'm a stay-at-home parent. I, I'm an engineer. I'm a farmer. I'm a law enforcement officer. I'm an artist. I'm a musician. Uh, perhaps uh, your mind, as you think about that, would go to uh, aspects of your family. You might think of yourself as a mother or a father, a husband or a wife, a child, a brother, a sister, a grandparent. 
Uh, perhaps what you think of when you ask who are you is, is where you're from, uh, what part of the country or what part of the world you have come from. Perhaps you think about your accomplishments, uh, things that you have been able to do in life. How we answer that question tells us a lot about how we see ourselves. It also tells us a lot about what we believe. The Bible gives us several good answers to that question. If you are in Christ this morning, if you're a Christian, the Bible gives us answers to who are you. And if you've been here over the recent year and a half or so, as we were looking at the book of Ephesians, we talked over and over and over again as Paul pointed us to that little phrase in that book that he uses throughout his letters, that if you are a Christian, then who are you? You are in Christ. You have been united to Him in His death and in His resurrection, and you are now with Him Your identity is in Christ. But the Bible gives us other words, other phrases of describing who we are. We are the beloved. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. It's interesting that here in our passage today, John gives us two more answers to that question of who we are. But I would suspect that they are not words that we would typically use when we describe who we are. What does Paul say, or John say, about who we have been made? We have been made kings and priests. I wonder how often you might describe yourself as a king or a priest. But that is what John says that we are. And I would suggest to you this morning that as we understand what that means... It fills us with purpose in this life and it fills us with power to live as God has called us to live. So today what I want us to look at are three things. First of all, how he has made us kings and priests, what that looks like to live as a king or a priest, and then why we should do so. So we'll look at those three things. Now before we jump in and look at those three things, it's been a couple of weeks since we started uh, our study of the book of Revelation. So just a couple of quick reminders. This book was written by John. Uh, he is, uh, was one of Jesus' closest disciples, uh, usually referred to as one of the three that were the closest to Jesus. Uh, he wrote the Gospel of John as well as uh, the letters 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he wrote this letter, uh, we're told here in verse 4, not only that it is John that writes it, but who he is writing it to, the seven churches that are in Asia. That's in present day Turkey, often referred to as Asia Minor. It's the churches that he refers to in chapters 2 and 3. But he also uses that number 7 throughout the book of Revelation, and it's used throughout the Old Testament as well, symbolically. And the, word, the number 7 means completeness or fullness. And so there's a sense in which what John is saying is not only is he writing to these specific churches in Asia Minor, but he's writing to Christ's church universal throughout the ages. So to us, sitting and reading it here in 2019 as well. 
And why is he writing to them? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We'll see it as we progress through this book. But he is writing to a a group of Christian people in the first century that were experiencing and were about to experience significant persecution and difficulties in their life. And he was writing this letter to them to encourage them and to remind them of God's grace and peace that was theirs through Jesus Christ. He was writing to encourage them to persevere and to endure through their difficulties and through their persecutions. And as we talked about two weeks ago, he underscores the main point that he's trying to get through to them throughout the book. God is in charge of history and he wins through Christ. He hits that home over and over and over again through this letter to encourage them. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. Persevere. Endure. Nothing that you are going to experience in this life can ever change what is true about who you are in Christ. He's also writing this book so that they wouldn't just hunker down in fear. And, and uh, uh, hide and retreat. But he's writing to them so that in the midst of the evil and the persecution and the brokenness and sin in which they live, he calls them to live as Christ's ambassadors. In fact, he calls them to live as kings and priests. So let's look and see what John says about that today. First of all, what does he tell us about how we have been made kings and priests? It's in verses 4 and 5. And what I want you to see here is that what John says is that we have been made kings and priests by nothing less than the loving work of the triune God. That's what he begins talking about at the beginning of verse 4. That we have been made kings and priests through the sovereign love of the Father. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was And who is to come. He's referring to the sovereign, all-powerful, loving Father. The one who is. The one who has no dependence on anything outside of himself for his existence. The one who exists by his own power. The one who exists outside of time. The one who is eternally sovereign. Surely in John's mind he's thinking about What God told Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush as Moses was being commissioned to go speak to Pharaoh. And Moses said, well, who should I say is sending me to to speak to this great world leader? And God speaks to Moses and he says, tell him I am has sent you. It's the same sense here when we are told this is the one who is. Who was and who is to come. God the Father uses His all-powerful, sovereign love to redeem us, to give us His grace and peace, and to make us kings and priests. It's also through the supplying love of the Holy Spirit. Now you may be wondering, where do you see the Holy Spirit here in this passage? Well, it's there in verse 4 as well. It says, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. Almost all of the solid biblical commentators agree that John is speaking here specifically of the Holy Spirit when he refers to the seven spirits who are before the throne. 
I mean, that makes sense of the context. If you think about it, he's speaking about the grace and peace that comes to us from the Father. And he's going to mention the Son, Jesus, in just a moment. And so it makes sense that he would be referring here to the Holy Spirit. But it also, we're reminded that he's speaking here about the seven spirits before the throne. And again, as I mentioned to you earlier, the, word, the number seven is symbolic throughout Revelation for completeness or fullness or wholeness or perfection. So what is that complete and full and perfect spirit that is before the throne supplying grace and peace to God's people? It's nothing less than the Holy Spirit. John speaks this way elsewhere in Revelation about the Holy Spirit. He's probably also thinking about the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 4 that spoke about the sevenfold Spirit of God supplying the church with what it needs. What John is referencing here is that the Holy Spirit is before the throne of God playing His role in supplying the grace and peace to us that we need and making us kings and priests. It's also through the saving love of the Son. It's what he says in verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. He's describing in these three uh, little phrases, he's describing the person of Jesus. He's describing the person of Jesus in three ways, or in his three offices, if you will. Jesus is a faithful witness. What is Jesus witness of? He is a witness of God's truth. This is describing Jesus' work as a prophet. He is always true and faithful in fulfilling the word of God, both in his life and in his words. John says he's also the firstborn of the dead. Speaking about his resurrection from the grave. It's a reference to Jesus' work as a priest. His, his redemptive work of going to the cross and paying for our sin and dying for us and then going into the grave and being raised again as the firstborn from the dead and ascending into heaven. It's his work of redemption as a priest on our behalf. He is also not, he's not only the faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead. John says he is the, the ruler of the kings on earth. He, he rules and reigns over history forever. Describing Jesus' work as the King of Kings. Showing us here the person of Jesus in all of the ways that He functions for us. But He's also showing us His work and what He has done. What does Jesus say, or what does John say that Jesus has done in the second half of verse 5? To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. Through the perfect work of of being our prophet and our priest and our king, Jesus loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. Through His present and through His never-ending love, He has freed us from the penalty of our sins and He has freed us from the power of our sin and He gives us grace and peace. What John is wanting us to understand in these verses is that the sovereign, supplying, saving love of nothing less than the triune God has been at work to redeem us and to free us from our sin. And as we meditate on that love of God for us as His people, it is meant to move us to live like who we are. It's meant to encourage us to persevere in the calling for how we are to live in this life because of God's love. 
A friend of mine recently told me about an article that appeared on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle uh, paper back in September of 2013. It was a story uh, about a metro transit bus operator in the city of San Francisco. Uh, Her name was Linda Wilson Allen, and she drove the number 45 bus. And Linda drove that bus and treated her passengers in such a way that the article brought out that people would actually let other buses pass them by that were going in their direction just so they could ride on the number 45 bus with the driver, Linda. She knew her regular passengers. She knew their names. She learned their stories. And she created an environment of blessing uh, and and a very difficult environment in San Francisco. The article told stories of some of the passengers. One was an 80-year-old lady named Miss Ivy. And Miss Ivy on one occasion uh, had gone to the grocery store and was waiting at the bus stop to take her groceries back home. And she had these heavy bags of grocery groceries. And when the bus pulled up, when number 45 pulled up, the door opened. But Miss Ivy couldn't manage to get the, the, the grocery bags onto the bus. And so Linda parked the bus, got out of the bus, went down and got Miss Ivy's grocery bags and brought them onto the bus and then helped her to find her seat. And there was another story about a a lady named Tanya who was obviously new to San Francisco and she was uh, at a bus stop waiting for a bus to come by and old number 45 was the one that stopped to pick her up. And Linda could see, she could tell that Tanya was new and that she was a little scared of the city and she was a little intimidated by the city, not sure exactly how this city was working. So Linda invited her on to the bus and made sure she found her seat. And then she, knowing that Thanksgiving was coming up, invited Tanya to come to her house for Thanksgiving dinner, knowing that she probably wouldn't have anybody else there that she knew. Invited her over and fed her in the company of herself and then helped her to learn more about the city. Linda built such an atmosphere of blessing that her passengers often reciprocated by giving her various gifts. They would bring her uh, bouquets of flowers. They would bring her potted plants. Uh, Some of her passengers even offered to let her use their vacation homes uh, when she wanted to take a vacation. Uh, They would see her wear these wonderful scarves as a part of her outfit. And so uh, over the years, they would begin bringing her scarves so that By the time the article was written, she had hundreds of these scarves that had been given to her by her passengers. In the midst of a very difficult job, with thankless and cranky passengers at times, with the ongoing maintenance issues with the bus, with the constant traffic jams that she had to navigate, and all for not a lot of pay, there was Linda driving number 45, Serving faithfully, even with joy, providing an atmosphere of blessing. She was quoted in the article that she woke up every morning that she was to go to work at 2.30 in the morning so that she could pray for a half an hour. She would pray for her route. She would pray for her passengers and she would pray that she might be a blessing to them. After the article was written, a lot of people began to contact her and ask her more about her rationale and her reasons for why she did this. And it came out that Linda was a Christian. And she saw driving 
the number 45 bus as a way that she could faithfully serve the Lord and be a blessing to others. Every day when she came to the last stop on her route, she would say the same thing every day. That's all. Take care. I love you. And the article highlighted that over years, her kindness and her expression of love impacted hundreds of people, inspired hundreds of people. Brothers and sisters in Christ, John is telling us that the triune God and King of the universe loves you. He has shown His love through His sovereign, loving work as a Father. Through His supplying love of the Holy Spirit and through His saving love of His Son. How does that impact you? How does it inspire you to live your life? John is saying to us today that the work of the triune God is meant to make us live as kings and priests. That's what he says at the verse 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. So what does that look like? Well, John doesn't give us a whole lot of information here. Uh, He doesn't tell us a whole lot of exactly what it looks like for us to be king and priest. A lot of what Revelation is about, the rest of the book, we'll see that fleshed out. But let's think just for a moment here about how Jesus served as a king and as a priest. As a king, Jesus knows and upholds and models truth. And righteousness. Jesus knows God's truth and he lived that truth out in his life, modeling it for all. He taught and lived out the truth of God without compromise. As God's kings here on earth, we are to know and to uphold and to live out God's truth. That means we need to know His truth. We need to know what the Word of God, the truth of God says. It means that we ought to live it out in our own lives. And it also means that we must hold it out to a world that doesn't believe it very often without compromise. Even when it's costly. We are to be kings. But he also says we are to be priests. Well, how was Jesus a priest for us? He, he mediated God's grace to his people. Jesus pointed us and led us to the loving grace and mercy that we have through him with God. And he not only pointed us to his grace on the cross... But he also modeled for us what it looks like to live a life of grace and love toward others. So, as God's priests here on earth, we are to know God's grace for us. And we are to point others to God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in addition to that, we are to mediate God's grace to everyone that we encounter That's part of what it means when we say that we seek to love our neighbors. 
We uncompromisingly hold to the truth of God's word, but we do so filled with grace and love. The two cannot be separated. If you do a good job serving as a king, knowing and following and telling others about the truth of God and the truth of his word, but you do so in an ungracious and unloving and harsh way, then you're falling short of what God has commanded you to do and to live as. If you do a good job of serving as a priest, being gracious and loving toward others, but you compromise on the truth of God, then you're falling short in what God has called you to be. They can't be separated. We are to be kings and priests, conduits of his truth and his grace and love. I was thinking about that this past week and what that looks like, and I thought of what I would consider a current and tangible example of how we need to be living that out today. There is a lot of conversation going on in our own circles and certainly in the culture at large about how the church should interact with Christians, believing, professing believers in Christ who struggle with same-sex attraction. How do we live as God's kings and priests in the midst of such an important and charged discussion? There is a lot of conversation going on, online and otherwise, some of which is very good and helpful and some of which is not. As kings, we must hold firmly and without compromise to the truth of God's word. The Bible is clear that homosexuality is a sin. It's not what God created us to be. That homosexual actions and desires are to be repented of, to be leaned against, and to be mortified as sins. But the Bible is also clear that homosexual desires and actions are not the unforgivable sin. The Bible is clear that if same-sex attraction is not our particular struggle, that we're no better than for those that it is. There is grace and forgiveness and acceptance with God for all sinners who repent and turn to him. And as kings, we must hold firmly to all of these truths because they are in God's word. We must do so without compromise, even if it's costly to us. But we're also to be priests. We are to be conduits not only of God's truth, but also of God's love. His grace and his peace to all people. That includes brothers and sisters in Christ who struggle with same-sex attraction. We must point them as we would point others and point ourselves to the grace and to the love of Jesus. We must show them the love and the grace of Jesus. We are to love them. We are to show them God's grace in how we talk to each other and how we listen to each other. How we point them to truth and how we point them to the cross of Christ. We've been called to live as kings and priests. There are a couple other things here that John says. I don't have time to get into them. We'll talk about them more as they come up throughout Revelation. But just quickly, let me mention that we are to be living as kings and priests, anticipating Christ's return. That's what he gets at in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. We are to live as God's kings and priests, pointing to God's truth, pointing to God's grace. Anticipating that Jesus is coming back. 
And that when he does return, John says, everybody will know it. And those who are not in a relationship with Christ will have to face the holiness and righteousness of God all by themselves. So he's reminding us as kings and priests, we are to proclaim the truth and proclaim God's grace that all might believe and come to a saving faith in the Lord. He also talks that we're to live as kings and priests under God's sovereign authority. That's what he's getting at at the end of our passage in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. John is reminding us that as we serve as kings and priests, we do it under God's authority. We live and serve under His sovereign authority. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the all in all. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come, who is outside of time, who is sovereign over history. He is the one who sovereignly holds all things together by the word of his power, accomplishing all of his purposes and promises. And as he ends, he says, he is the almighty. That word in the Greek is made up of two little Greek words, one meaning all things and the other meaning dominion and power. God is the one who exercises sovereign power and dominion and authority over all things at all times and all places. And he calls and equips us to serve as his kings and his priests at his good pleasure, according to his truth and grace. And as we remember that, it helps us to remember why he's called us to be kings and priests. You can see that in verse 6. The end of verse 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to who? To his God. We are made a king. We are made a kingdom and priest to his God and father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Why has God made us to be his kings and priests? It is so that we might exhibit the glory of God. We are to serve as conduits of God's truth and God's grace, not for our glory, but for the glory of God alone. We are to do it to His God and Father. We are to do it for His glory. That means that everything that we do in our lives should be done to the glory of God, how we spend our time, what we do with the treasures that God gives us to be good stewards over, how we use the talents that God has given to us. When we serve as God's kings and priests, we are serving as conduits of truth and grace. We are to be ambassadors of Jesus, pointing people to him so that he might receive all the glory and praise. So as we finish this morning, it's a reminder to us that as we seek to go out this week, as we have opportunities to speak truth, the truth of God's word, as we have opportunities to speak about the grace and the love of God and to point people to Christ, we must always evaluate and think, who's getting the glory here? Is it me? Is it my church? Is it this ministry? Is it anything else? It must be only... And completely for God above all things. So whether we're at work, in our homes, in the ministry of the church, as we serve the Lord as his kings and priests here on earth, let's remember the one that we're serving. The one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come, the Almighty. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together.
Father, your, your word is so rich and deep, and all we're doing this morning is scratching the very surface of it. But we are overwhelmed with this sense of calling that you've given to us, this, this sense of identity that, that you've called us to be your kings and priests here in this world, to be conduits of your truth and grace. And we recognize that we are so inadequate for the task. We so often fail at one or both of those. We pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would, through your word and through the work of your spirit, motivate us and inspire us as we contemplate your love for us. The love of the triune God working, saving persevering us, preserving us. We pray, Father, that you would inspire us and motivate us to go out and not only to endure through difficult things that we are called to go through, but that we would go out and truly be ambassadors for Jesus. Use us to that end, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew tells us that as Jesus and the disciples were gathered together to eat together, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Uh, we live in an area of the country where uh, it's very uh, much a, a seasoned land with Roman Catholicism and Lutheranism. That's, those, those are thick here in southeastern Minnesota and in our state as a whole. And, and we're also a, a church that's filled not only with people from those backgrounds, but also people that come from more of a Baptist kind of background. And so it's, it's good for us from time to time to actually talk about what we're doing here at the table uh, and, and what we're not doing uh, because of that environment that we find ourselves in uh, to remind ourselves what we believe about the Lord's Supper. We uh, have a different understanding than uh, the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church. Uh, we uh, believe that the elements of the bread and the wine and the juice remain what they are, bread and wine and juice. Uh, as the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans speak about the real presence of Jesus, we have a different understanding of what the Bible teaches about that. We do believe that Jesus is really present here, but he is present, as Calvin says, really and spiritually. That as we eat and drink, we are communing with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is at this very moment at the right hand of God the Father as our advocate. That he is there in body, in spirit. So as we eat and drink, we have fellowship with the Lord spiritually through the work of the Holy Spirit. We also differ from our Baptist brothers and sisters in Christ and the Baptist traditions. Uh, we don't believe that this is simply a memorial or a remembrance. It certainly is that. It helps us to remember. Uh, but we actually believe that there's more taking place here than just a remembrance, that this is truly a sacrament, that it is a means of grace, that as God's people come and as they eat and they drink in faith, that the Holy Spirit is at work. 
in a way that is truly a mystery that we can't completely explain or understand that the Holy Spirit is at work as we come in faith and partake that He uses what we're doing here to strengthen our faith. Uh, to, to give us an even greater resolve to go out and to live for our God. I think that's the reason why Paul gave the warning that he did in 1 Corinthians. That uh, those who come to this table should be true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the, that's the position of our denomination. Is that we invite all of those who are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who have been baptized and joined themselves together with a church that believes the Bible is God's word. That believes that our salvation is by grace alone. Through faith alone in Christ alone. If, you, if that, if that uh, describes you, uh, then you are welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper today. And we would encourage you to do so. If that's not you, we would invite you to allow the elements to pass you by. And instead to use the opportunity to, to meditate on the Word of God, His truth, and His grace. Let's pause for a moment and thank Him for giving us this table. Our great God and King, we come before you and we are thankful for the Lord's Supper. We're thankful that it is one more reminder in our service today of all that has been accomplished for us through the life and death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are thankful that through the work of the Holy Spirit, as you give us faith to come to you, you use this means of grace, this very ordinary meal to strengthen, to help us, to move us, to understand your love, your grace, your truth in deepening ways that we might glorify you even better this coming week than we have this past week. Would you do that through this means of grace, through the work of the Spirit, for the glory of your name above all things. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.